Good morning, church. Good to see you this morning. Did everybody get sermon notes? Okay, great. Good, good, good. That'll help you follow along. Uh, Welcome to our reboot of the series we've been calling Mountaineering with the Master. And again, we believe here at Arise Church that words are very important. So what does the word reboot mean? Reboot. Reboot. That's a a word that's come into existence not that long ago. It can be a verb like reboot or it can be a noun like reboot, depending on how you say it. But the meaning is this, to restart. To restart. Now we think about that. To restart. Now, since our country is severely divided at many different levels. Let's continue the division process. Uh, I am an Apple person. How many are Apple? Okay, the, the, okay, how many are Android? They're the more vocal minority. Uh, sorry, folk, uh, but that's okay. Uh, how many of you don't give a rip? <laughs> Come on, it's a phone. <laughs> Get over it, all right? <laughs> but I found that as an Apple owner... Uh, in my devices, uh, rebooting them is absolutely necessary. So I reboot my Apple devices at least once a week. It really helps clean them out and make them run more efficiently than your Androids. Okay, so uh, (laughs) uh, second definition, to restart in order to establish a new beginning. To restart in order to establish a new beginning. So if we're restarting something, uh, there's great intent in that restart. And that's that we might get a new beginning. So that's what we're doing here this morning. We took a pandemic break uh, for this series. And then along the way, we sold our campus. We bought another property. We're meeting here at LCA. And our journey is unfolding before us. This summer, we learned to accept one another just as Jesus accepts us. That's really hard to do, but through powerful stories, we're learning how to do that in a much better way, right? And so that process continues. But now it's time to start climbing again. Mountaineering means climbing a peak in order to get to the top. That's pretty simple. We're going to climb up so that we can reach the summit, reach the top. That's our destination. And that's what the word mountaineering means. Very simple. Mountaineering requires the spirit of an adventure and also the ability sometimes to survive in some harsh conditions. So think about mountaineering for a moment. It's far more than a leisurely walk in the park. It may require us to survive in some rather harsh conditions. And so uh, we look at mountaineering uh, in the title, but with the master. The master, of course, is Jesus, that's always the right answer here. Uh, Do you know him? That can be rhetorical, but I'm actually asking you. Do you know him? Okay, I I hope that you do. How do you know that you know him? Lives through you, okay. Okay, you acknowledge that you're a sinner, separated from? Good, okay, just asking, just asking. If you do know Jesus, he's looking for climbing companions this morning. Uh, We started this series with this verse, and it continues. When Jesus saw his ministry drawing huge crowds, he climbed a hillside. Those who were apprenticed to him, the committed, climbed with him. Arriving at a quiet place, he sat down and taught his 
climbing companions, and I trust that you're a climbing companion of Jesus today. He's looking for fellow climbers to reach the summit. That is the goal. Now, we began the series in September 2019, 2019, and so far we have covered 22 verses. Woo! We are blazing, blazing along. We've been diving deep into the words of Jesus. Those are the red ones in my Bible or on your electronic device, the red ones. The words of Jesus, which I think are extremely important as I think of ending my ministry years, I want to end with the words of Jesus because that's how I started and that's how I want to finish. And so, as we think about this, we come to this passage of Scripture, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, called the Sermon on the Mount. Let me tell you a little bit more about it as a way of reminder and some new stuff. Matthew is the first and longest of the four Gospels. There are four Gospels. I've given you one of them. What are the other three? Mark, Luke, and John. Pretty smart, are you? Okay. What are the Synoptic Gospels? Is that a guess, or are you just throwing that out there? Matthew, Mark, and Luke? What's wrong with John? I kind of like that name, personally. Yeah, good. All right. The word gospel, euangelion, means good message or good news. It is good news. That's why Jesus came, to offer us good news. And just as a side note, Jesus is good news. Never, ever, ever. Do you see Jesus Christ talking to an unbeliever about hell? Never. Never. And yet we scare people to Jesus all the time. Hmm. How's that work for you? Eh, Just a thought. little sidebar there. He came to offer good news. Good news. Not escape from hell. He came to offer good news, and I trust that's what you attracted to him, is the fact that he has good news. Yeah. And so Jesus, in his ministry, talked to two groups of people about hell. One was people who thought they knew God, the religious leaders, and the other group was his disciples as he taught them about the contrast to the heaven, to the good news that he came to proclaim, but never, ever. Go ahead, search your little Bibles, find one place in which Jesus talked to an unbeliever about hell. Good. Gospel of Matthew is written by a tax collector named Levi, also known as Matthew, who left his profession in order to follow Jesus. Some of us have done that. We've left our profession in order to follow Jesus. It's kind of a scary thing. Matthew 9 and Matthew 10 record that. Matthew gives us an up-close and personal look at some and many of the miracles that Jesus did before he would be executed and then talks about his glorious resurrection and then the mission that we have after that. Wow. The purpose of the book is to prove to his primarily Jewish readers that, in fact, this man, Jesus, was, in fact, the God Messiah that had been prophesied in the Old Testament for centuries and centuries. That's why the book was written. So it was written between 50 and 70 AD, and historical evidence tells us that Matthew, who gave us the Great Commission in Matthew 28 to go into all the world, ultimately took the good news of Jesus to Ethiopia where he was martyred in a horrific way. So he lived it out right until the end. That's Matthew's story. Now beginning in chapter 5 and continuing through chapter 7, all these words are in red by the way in your Bible. Jesus lays down his principles for living in a spiritual world, the kingdom he came to proclaim, the kingdom that we just sang about. 
the kingdom. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 4. And then from then on, Jesus began to preach, repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. That's what he first began talking about, this kingdom of heaven. And it's very close to you. It is very, very close to you. Can you sense it? And then Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. That's what he taught about. Good news and the kingdom. A ah, little boo-boo there. What is in your sermon notes? Does that say Matthew 5.23? It should be 4.23. I was practicing this and I thought, whoop, I put a boo-boo in there. So, Jesus came to talk about the kingdom. Now, Jesus Christ is the king of kings. The king of all kings. That's uh, who he is. He is God's son. And a king needs subjects, and that's where we come in. He's the king. We're not. We're his subjects if we choose to enter into his kingdom. And so, the kingdom of God, Jesus says, is not out there. It's not out there. The kingdom is within us. It's anywhere the reign and rule of God are absolute and lived out. So if you are Jesus' follower, it's lived out in the human drama of everyday life. That's where the kingdom of God is activated. We're not looking for the streets of gold kind of kingdom out there. We're looking for the kingdom that's already within you, Jesus said. And it comes by violence and there's a war going on in the midst of this kingdom. And so Matthew describes Jesus coming. The very first things he's saying uh, when he goes public with his ministries, I want to give you some good news about the kingdom of God. And so the sanctuary for this greatest sermon ever delivered was a mountainside. The Bible says, as far as we know, uh, it's more of a large hill that had no name until God chose to use it for his pulpit. And that's how he used it. The traditional location for the Sermon on the Mount is the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Here's a picture from uh, my travels uh, there. It's now called the Mount of Beatitudes, and it's all commercialized and all this stuff. But anyway, it's there on the shores somewhere of the Sea of Galilee. Matthew and Luke both tell us that Jesus descended. He descended, which is interesting, the mountain and stood on a plateau on the mountainside. So you've got to kind of picture what's happening here. Apparently, the people sat up on the mountainside. Jesus came down to a plateau down here. He was in a natural amphitheater because of the geography of the land there on the lake shore. And he spoke, and when he spoke, he spoke up to them. They were looking down at Jesus as he began to teach. Next to the Ten Commandments, the Sermon on the Mount is the most quoted section of the entire Bible. It contains the Golden Rule, the Lord's Prayer, and some of the most misunderstood and confusing teachings of Jesus, which, Lord willing, we'll get to, I hope. (laughs) Like, let me ask you this. Is judge not lest ye be judged a hard no against judging people? You know I'm setting you up. (laughs) Ah, We're going to get to that. Are we supposed to judge people? Wrong. But we'll get to that. Lord willing. Lord willing. Yep. Because these are some of the most confusing and misunderstood and misinterpreted sections of Scripture. Judge not lest ye be judged. Well, how can Paul say, is it not your job to judge those inside the church? Same word. Aren't we judging people? 
Well, we'll try to unpackage that when we get to that passage of Scripture. There's a lot of misunderstandings about the teachings of Jesus. Hopefully we can clarify. Anyway, Jesus' words were certainly revolutionary. Certainly revolutionary. There's no doubt about that. In fact, they will smack us right in the face just as they did to those listeners 2,000 years ago. Here's what Matthew recorded. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. They were astonished at his teaching. That word astonished means uh, to amaze, to be beside yourself. It's like having your mind blown. You're just freaked out. What is he saying? What is this guy? Who is this guy? And so I, I trust that the words of Jesus still have that impact on you. When you look at those words in red, Jesus is still speaking and he's speaking to us. And if we take this lightly and nonchalantly and it's kind of boring, we're missing the whole point. When they first heard it, they were amazed. It was like, what? And I hope that happens again and again in your heart. It's like, what are you saying here? I gotta do this, that, what? I can't do that. That's impossible. Yeah, and it is. It is. In the morning, anyway. Jesus got up and went down the mountain. We'll talk about that in a moment. But let's finish this little background section. Sermon on the Mount is 111 verses long. It's by far the longest recorded teaching of Jesus in the Scripture. By far the longest recorded. That's why I think we need to emphasize this passage of Scripture. Extremely important. So here's how it went down. Until this point in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus' words have been very few. He's just beginning his public ministry. In preparation for his sermon the next day, Jesus goes up up on the hillside, uh, apparently to get away from the crowds and to be alone. And he prays before he delivers this revolutionary message. Luke 6, 12. One day Jesus went up on a mountain to pray, and he prayed all night. And if you read Luke chapter 6, then comes the Sermon on the Mount. So this thing was bathed in prayer. In the morning, Jesus came down where he met his disciples and a whole ton of people. They were all in the crowd. They were all there. The rejects, the forgotten, the spiritually confused, the unconvinced, the morally bankrupt, the self-righteous. They were all there in the crowd listening to him. They are curious. They are desperate. They are hopeful. They are bored. They are hungry. Some seek his healing powers. And they brought them. They brought their demon-possessed, their lame, their blind, the scripture says, and he healed them all. He healed them all just prior to this message. And that's why the crowds came. They're like, whoa, this guy is something different. Many in the multitude were deeply touched, and some were actually transformed through his teaching. The majority, the vast majority, went away unchanged. They listened, they watched, they were healed, they were fed, but they never truly repented of their sins, turned to God in this kingdom that he was proclaiming. They were so close, so close, and yet they missed the entire point. And I trust that's never going to be true for any of us as we stand before Jesus, to be so close, maybe to even hear his words, to know his words, and yet be so distant because we've never repented and turned to God as he desires. Anyway, more than likely, the majority of the crowd were laborers and farmers and fishermen, working class of society, common folk, just like you and me. But in that crowd were also tax collectors and prostitutes, the liberals and the conservatives of his day, those labeled sinners by the religious powers that be. Most are nameless. Most are faceless. But they're just like you and me. 
They're all present in the crowd. They take it all in, even though the location is different. The reasons we have come this morning haven't. I could ask, what are we doing here this morning? What are we doing here this morning? You come to hear Jesus? Come to be healed? Come to see him do a miracle? What are you doing here? Why are we here this morning? Why are we here? Why do crowds gather? The crowds came and Jesus taught the crowds. Most were not impacted. But through his Holy Spirit, he asks what he asks. What is it you want me to do for you? Jesus asks that important question. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Okay, well, allow me to make some observations about this passage of Scripture. This is just the overview, the reboot. The theme of this Mount message is that God's work is first and foremost and always will be internal, not external. I think we get that. I think we get that. It's primarily spiritual and moral rather than physical and political. I think we get that too. And yet as I've come up in American evangelicalism of the 80s and 90s, I am aghast at how quickly evangelicalism aligned itself with a political movement. And any time you mix Jesus with politics, we lose. He was not about politics. And that's why he talked about this radical kingdom that has nothing to do with this that's going on here. It has to do with what's in here and how are we going to live this out. And so, what do we do? Hmm. It's the things I've been wrestling with. You see, Jesus didn't preach social reform. He never preached about social reform, but rather spiritual transformation. He talked about spiritual transformation because uh, we understand that once we're spiritually transformed, then comes social reform. If we get this whole thing backwards, the church derails and gets way, way off track. Jesus knows that who we are determines what we do. And that's why he's always going for the heart. Always going for the heart. Notice, Jesus didn't teach his climbing companions how to study the Bible or share their faith. Those are important things. He talked about what real love looks like. Man, it's scary, it's freaky, it's radical. That's what he talked about. Secondly, the teachings of this message are absolutely contrary to what we've been taught here in America. Absolutely contrary. The greatest in this new kingdom that he came to talk about are the lowliest by the world's standards. The misfits and the failures, the meek and the compassionate, those are the winners, ultimately, in his kingdom, in the kingdom of heaven. It's all upside down. In order to lead, you must follow. To find life, you must die to yourself. To get back at your enemy, you got to love them. To get rich, you got to give it all away. And he asks, are you in? You really want to try this life? Really, really, really. (laughs) And he asks us, what do you want me to do for you? 
And so he knows, thirdly, a new birth is necessary to meet this new standard. Like, Jesus, this is absolutely impossible. And he says, yes, it's absolutely impossible for you to do. Absolutely impossible. And so we do uh, religious stuff, best practices, tradition, great intentions, good works, or finding the best version of yourself are all going to come up short because his message was simple. Repent. Repent and believe the good news. Surrender your life. That's what he's asking us. Pretty radical stuff, isn't it? Pretty radical stuff. He doesn't want you to live the best version of yourself. He's not asking us to do that. I hope we're aware of that. He's asking us to live the best version of who he is living through us. Wow, wow, wow. Repent of your sins and turn to God. Fourthly, a person who lives by these principles will be a spiritual magnet. If we choose to live in uh, according to these revolutionary teachings and truly follow Jesus, we're going to be different. We will be different. We will be different individually. We will be different families. We will be a different church. We will be different. That's what he's saying. Because it's all about this kingdom. Now, I only have time to reboot today. Lord willing, we'll drink deeply from the words of Jesus. These living words that he's given to us. Precious words of Jesus. But I must ask each of us, you afraid of heights? Will you climb with me? Jesus is looking for climbing companions this morning. God is calling us to take the higher road the higher road. Up there, the air is rare. Up there is not like down here. They're different. Who will climb? It'll take courage to climb. It will. Before battle, Deuteronomy 28 records this. Is anyone terrified? If you are, go home before you frighten anyone else. This isn't for the wimps, right? You're just, no, 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 what you do is go home. Get out of here. We don't want that attitude around here. No, we're all seeking. We're all searching, right? We're all in different places. But God is inviting us to say, climb with me. Climb with me. Let's see where this can go. If we truly desire to climb with Jesus, again, we best count the cost. It is not easy. So the Lord says to Joshua, very familiar verse, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So who will climb? Who will climb? Who will climb? All right, that's enough. I just want to get her rebooted this morning. Any questions, comments? understand everything, understand Matthew. So if I break out a quiz later on down the road, once we get a little further into this, you will, of course, do very well on it. Right? Questions or comments? Agree? Disagree? Yes. Both. Okay. <laughs> Good. All right, I want to make sure we're clear. That we're clear. Good. All right. I'm looking forward to next week. We're going to talk about, about uh, relationships and reconciliation. Then Sam's going to speak a little later in the month. And then we're going to dive into for, man, I keep chopping this stuff back. 
you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you look on another woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery with her. What in the world did he mean by that? Hmm. And in that, we're going to have a sex talk. Because this thing is so messed up. We're going to bring it back to God's standard. So that's coming a little later. I'm looking forward to that and preparing this thing. Said, ooh, John, you're pushing a little too far there. Better back it down. Better back it down. Better back it down. What is God's intent around all this? Then we're going to look at divorce. What that means. We're going to get into some pretty sticky issues. But this is where people are. This is where life is lived. And my bottom line is this. If the church can't be redemptive, who can? And I'm getting real tired of the church pushing people away. Real tired of it. 